Hello! Welcome back to the podcast that explores what's going on and what's going wrong with mental health in the UK today. We, that is me, interested nobody, Rob Thorman, together with my mother-in-law, informed legend, Merrin Jones, are going on a journey to make sense of the madness that's happening in the UK at the moment, in terms of how we deliver professional help to people who are struggling with their mental health. In our last episode, we traced the story of Merrin's service, how it delivered vital help for people who needed it, and how it was closed down. Merrin's story is a familiar one to anyone who works in the NHS or anyone who knows someone suffering from poor mental health. Low-cost, quick-fix treatments are being promoted, whereas more expensive, longer-term treatments, like psychotherapy, are being axed. In this episode, we're going to see how decisions about who gets what treatment leads us into a decades-old conflict between psychiatrists, psychologists and psychotherapists who all come at mental health problems from very different angles and with very different theories and approaches. We're going to be breaking down what all these different psychs do, what they believe, what they promise to do, and how these professions have competed for resources over the past few decades. We're then going to be speaking to Rex Haig and Vanessa Jones to see how this competition for resources has played out in relation to therapeutic communities generally, and specifically in relation to their therapeutic community that they still run today in Slough. Quick bit of housekeeping. I had such a heavy cold when we recorded our interview with Rex and Vanessa, so look out for that and enjoy. All right, are you sitting comfortably? If so, why? This is a podcast. It's audio on demand. You could be cooking. You could be on a run. It's literally the whole... Forget it. You do you. Whatever physical position this podcast finds you in, we hope you enjoy the episode and we hope that it helps you make some sense of the madness. Hello! Hello! Here we are again! We are! Number two! Episode two! I can't wait! Well, today we're going into the past. Ooh! So, Merrin, tell us about your past. My past? <laughs> Goodness, well, I'm very old. Which bit of it, Rob? I want, I want you to tell everyone about when you were a radical feminist and you'd go and pinch <laughs> men's bums. Okay, well, how do you know I still don't? <laughs> no, I did become radicalised on my social science degree and discovered that men didn't treat women fairly. And I got a bit angry. And I, me and my friend Carol Paris, hi Carol from Australia, I wonder where she is now. We used to hover and when we saw a man in a suit with a briefcase, We'd jump after him and then pinch his bottom. It didn't happen that often because he chased us. One of them did. And I got a bit scared. But we did used to heckle my uh, stu- uh, tutors when they said he all the time. And we go, she! <laughs> so there you are. Yeah. I think that is a lovely little snapshot Thank into... You. So how, I guess, how, did, how can we pull together how you became a therapist out of that? Well, I believe that... Ev- society. It's yes, all it's societal all about injustices. society, wider things that make people go mad and uh, liberating people by validating them and giving them a voice. Or pinching their bum. 
No, that's to put the other people down who are already <laughs> oppressing people. <laughs> Fair enough. But I do talk to you now. And you are a man. That's true. Thank you. So, we're going to start by putting Merrin through her paces. And we're going to try and break down and get her to explain to us some of the different kind of terms and disciplines that we find kind of within the whole mental health treatment umbrella. And we're very excited to then have a conversation with Rex Haig, who's a consultant psychiatrist in medical psychotherapy, and Vanessa Jones, who's a chartered psychologist. And hopefully by the end of Merrin's opening section, you'll know what the heck those words mean. And they're going to help us make some sense of kind of how all these different um, professions within mental health have kind of interacted. And we're going to also look about how therapeutic communities, which is obviously sort of a model of what Merrin Service was kind of based on, how that has kind of changed over time, where it came from, and how that change and how the, the kind of the ideas underpinning that model um, kind of in change as our society kind of changes. All right, so are you ready to try and make some sense of this madness? I'm trying to, I'm trying to. <laughs> Here we go. All right, so, Merrin, let's start with something that you've explained to me many, many times and I still <laughs> really struggle with. Well, it might be me. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not you. Okay, so what, what is the difference between psychology psychiatry and psychotherapy a lot of psychs yeah <laughs> what what do they all mean they're all very different right they are very different but there's obviously overlap in some areas and i'm not going to pretend to be the definitive explanation i'm just doing it as a relatively experienced sort of lay person <laughs> so psychiatrists and psychiatry are they are medically trained doctors who now are specialising in mental health. So, they have done the full medical training, they've gone and specialised in psychiatry, which generally means they are, um, their approach is to take an extensive history of someone, to make a diagnosis along certain agreed guidelines, so once you've got your diagnosis from your psychiatrist, they, uh, their treatment tends to be medicines, yeah. medication. So, um, and then they, their work would be to diagnose, to treat, and then to oversee and manage. So within that, they might, they'll be part of a team of psychiatric nurses and psychiatric social workers who um, work together managing a caseload of people and uh, psychiatry has traditionally been quite powerful they tend to be the ones who have the ultimate say because they are ultimately carrying the responsibility for someone's risk um, so it's it's a very pressured job in many ways you know there's a whole range of things that you can specialize in as a, a psychiatrist or you might want to be a general one which means you tend to work in a general team or on a general psychiatric ward okay so that's so that's okay so that's psychiatry yes what about psychology then psychology psychologists well you can be a psychologist if you've done a degree in psychology but you can't be a clinical psychologist clinical psychology is a doctorate level 
training in an approach and treatment and diagnosis of psychiatric issues, mental health. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, in Britain, the British Psychological Society tends to prioritise CBT um, and in all its forms. And, and so, okay, so CBT, that's is cognitive, cognitive behavioural therapy. Right. And that has got a lot of power in its evidence, in its um, research that it can be used to treat a lot of problems. And this has given rise to um, a lot of, in, you know, interest by governments in treatments that have become very dominant. Okay. So, so okay, so just let's see if I've got this right. So, so broadly speaking, we've kind of got like psychiatrists who are essentially kind of doctors mm -hmm. who've come to become interested in the mind. Yeah. And that means that their kind of treatments will come in the form of like basically medicines or drugs, things like antidepressants. Yeah. Basically something that will like help kind of alter your mind's yeah. physical state. Yes. Whereas psychologists, they're interested in treating the mind with non-medical yes. options, but the treatment is always like quite, as it were, well, we're going to unpick this, but it purports to be sort of very scientifically rigorous yes. Yes. strategies. Yes, and using, to sort of change behaviour and cognitions. Gotcha. So, um, so, you, so your you... training, you don't have to have your own therapy it's not seen as the same as psychotherapy. Where, so whereas psychotherapy, which obviously we've touched on last episode, but yeah. psychotherapy is interested in much more basic, essentially talking-based therapies well, where you're trying to find meaning and explore why something happened in yes. psychotherapy. I think psychotherapists... Um, I mean, there's an overlap between psychology and psychotherapy, obviously, and some clinical psychologists do train in family therapy, psychotherapy, other things to become more specialist in different areas. But CBT, which is the predominant uh, therapy offered by clinical psychologists here, um, isn't about the unconscious, it isn't about your early life, it isn't about you're sort of uh, going back too much. I mean, it's more about helping you, I think, adjust your behaviour and thoughts and uh, through helping you develop strategies, um, distractions, that sort of thing. It's been proved to be very good with obsessions or phobias, anxieties... So and, and and that's like kind of classic psychology, isn't it? So yeah. so it's essentially that there's sort of three schools of thought, but obviously you know they can overlap. You yeah. can have individuals that may be part of both. Yeah. But that and and obviously the sort of you might have patients where or or forms of treatment where one you know clearly one patient might be more suited to different. Yeah. But, or might try different ones, and mm -hmm. you you know you might. Um, uh, use certain CBT strategies uh, just to manage your anxieties when you have a panic attack. But that's not to say if you're in... But a psychotherapist uh, would be interested in helping that person think not only about how you manage it when you have one, 
but why are you having them in the first place? Mm. And going back, which usually tends to take longer. It can be seen as too long or too expensive, too intense, when why would you bother if you can treat it by giving people strategies? Mm. Now, the problem with that, I would say, is yes, that works for some people who aren't too complex, but in my experience, almost no one is not complex. And it's very rare that someone just has one problem. Mm. I mean, I think if you're a very well-adjusted, happy person and you have a car crash and then you start getting a bit of PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or panic attacks or you start feeling anxious, that is something that I think CBT would probably be very useful for because you aren't um, having to manage an additional stress in a very stressed person, mm. you know, and I think that uh, psychotherapy or psychotherapeutic approaches try to be more nuanced and more, I suppose they're just less clear, mm. therefore they're less difficult, I mean, they're more difficult to measure, mm. prove that they're effective because they're dealing with complexities of human distress mm. in a much wider way mm. you know like uh you know the field of trauma is a real minefield at the moment i think because psychology has developed trauma-based therapy which is largely cbt with other things like emdr eye movement rapid desensitization which no one knows why it works but it does work for some people which we can go into if you want later. But, um, you know, whereas I think psychotherapy always deals with trauma because that's what brings people into therapy largely. But it depends what your definition of trauma is as yeah. well. You know, where, who hasn't had some sorts of trauma? But it, I think if it's a very clear trauma, like you've been tortured... But even that, you know, you're going to have so many reactions to that, depending on the sort of upbringing you've had, the sort of relationships that you had in early years, how you manage distress and pain. So to me, as a psychotherapist, I'm going to take, you know, I'm not saying one outweighs the other, but I'm saying we need all of them mm. for different people. The more complex the person the more complex the therapy. So this is sort of all kind of at the heart of this episode and at the, kind of, I guess, the heart of the podcast, isn't it? Because, so we've got these sort of, all these different treatments and things, but obviously, as we sort of saw in, you know, when we talked about your service, ultimately, there are people who make decisions about what treatment gets given to certain patients and then that okay. kind of intersects with who, you know, what do people feel is the most valuable thing? So there's... The, the idea would be that there's communication and cooperation between the three, but that hasn't, that, that's not always the, the case. Is that, is that? Yeah, I think absolutely. Well put, Rob. <laughs> very, very, um, trying to be diplomatic yes, about yes. something that, I mean, you know... basically within any service, any sector, I think there's always going to be power struggles. There's always going to be empire building because for survival, and I think psychotherapy has traditionally been very bad at sort of joining the race. And psychology, I think, took a real opportunity to compete with doctors because they saw themselves and presented themselves as scientific. We've got evidence. We can show that we are just as effective as you, in fact, not more. 
And they have actually really shifted the balance of power. And I would say that managers, you know, a lot of managers in the NHS really like psychologists because they're clear, they have a clear model, they can present a sort of approach that you can fit in quite reasonably. They can show you that they can do it. They see certain numbers, you know. Whereas psychotherapy, I think, has always been a bit more messy and it's harder to um, evaluate more complex approaches. But we haven't been very good at it either, you know. Mm. And I think, but Rex and people have done research that has shown effectiveness. And on small scales, we have too. And just, you know, sometimes you think, the methods and the way in which evidence is taken can be so reductionist mm. that it actually loses any meaning. Mm. And, you know, obviously the book about that Farad Dalal has written really exposes the flaws in the evidence of CBT. So that's, so listeners, our next episode, <laughs> we're going to take a deep dive into kind of um, CBT and kind of really unpick all of the kind of data behind it and sort of why... Um, it's it's now so prolific within um, the kind of mental health world in, in, in the UK. Um, but as we also mentioned there, with Rex, what we're going to do is we're going to as it were, sort of try and understand where a lot of these ideas came from and understand, um, you know, the ideas behind therapeutic communities. Um, just before we bring Rex in, though, mm-hmm. just so I sort of... So I, I want to make sure that I'm clear as to... So, We've talked about those kind of different different schools of thought, the psychiatry, the psychology, the psychotherapy, how they interact, how um, certain types of treatment might be better for certain patients. On that, I guess what I just want to make sure I've got clear. So I remember last time we talked about we have we've got this because of very um, blunt tool of like a scale mm-hmm. where like on one hand you've kind of got neurotics, which is sort of the worried well, where you might be depressed or anxious. And on the other end, you've sort of got psychosis, which is you're sort of you're in another world, you're having hallucinations, and you and it, as a blunt tool, you tend to get sort of medication given to people who are having psychosis. So that tends to be more the realm of the psychiatrist. Sorry, sorry, yeah, yes. psychiatrist. Yes. And then on the other end, on for, for lower levels of neurosis, you know, so. Uh, it, it's not um, a level of neurosis that's not preventing you from living your life. That's where you might have more sort of talking-based, psychotherapy-based kind of treatments. If only, Rob. Yeah, well, this is <laughs> I it. I think what you get is antidepressants or whatever as soon as you go to your GP. Right. So, and that's what a lot of people are on, which is why there is quite a lot of concern about the amount of medication people are using and the pharmaceuticals making billions out of us. And it is a medicalization of human distress, you know. But then you've got, you know, neuroses is a very blunt tool, as you say, because people can be extremely uh, debilitated within that without being psychotic, you mm. know. I mean, you can be chronically unable to go out. You can be a hoarder. You can self-harm desperately, and you know. Okay, so we, we get a bit of a sense of this uh triangle of kind of psychology psychiatry psychotherapy getting a bit of a sense of how those disciplines interact and how when you know as a how the nhs sort of uh, draws on those different Mm. disciplines and how they sort of sort different patients and i guess the kind of question now that we want to go and talk to 
Rex and Vanessa about is how the therapeutic community works and how it's changed over the years to kind of, I guess, get a bit more context and understand mm. how kind of what happened to your service fits into a kind of broader picture. Yeah. All right. Okay. Let's go and do it. So we are delighted to have with us uh, Vanessa Jones and Rex Haig. Um, and Vanessa is a chartered psychologist who mainly kind of works in teaching and research. And she's got a background as a user in a therapeutic community. And Rex is an NHS medical psychotherapist who's kind of worked in TCs um, and kind of consulted with them throughout his career. Um, and we're going to talk with them, hopefully, about the kind of history of the, of, of the TC, how it's changed over the years, um, and get into a little bit more about why that, why those changes might have happened. Um, can I start off with? Well, first of all, thank you both so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. Um, so maybe to start off with, you could tell us a little bit more about the therapeutic community that you work in today at the moment. Thanks, Rob. Um, can I start, Vanessa? Go for it. Yeah, because and Vanessa and I are working together in one at the moment, um, and it's perhaps. It might not be very recognisable as a TC to people who knew them in the 1960s or 1970s or whatever, because it's been modified so much to to fit into the you know the modern NHS type type things. And I suppose the most striking thing about it is that it's only two and a half hours a week. Um, and two and a half hours a week. How can you have a community in two and a half hours a week? Well, I think if you have you know the community in the head in your head, as it were. So it's not to do with the walls or the building or anything like that. It's how we are with each other together. And I think we've got that bit of therapeutic community concentrated, as it were, into two and a half hours. And there's lots more to say about the fact that you know, it's much cheaper, obviously, for the NHS to run a TC for two and a half hours a week than to have it uh, you know, 24-7 or even every day. So it's sort of worked where we've got to, in a way, in TCs. But it's also given us lots of opportunities to do different things with it as a TC. So uh, because we're only all there together, all the staff and members for that two and a half hours a week, um, it, the relationships we have, we spread them out and people get up to all sorts of other things together that, that suit their own sort of where they are um, in their own mental health needs. So all sorts of different things around the town are part of what they do. And we come back and talk to them, talk about those things each each week. Um, and it's all yeah. co-produced in a way that co-produced is, is this, this word for um, we as staff don't make any decisions about it ourselves, but we agree everything together. So all these different things people get up to and all the rules we work by are all um, decided by discussion and agreement in, in the various groups on the Tuesday. And that's, I think, an exciting model of TCs that I say is very different from the old traditional ones, but actually has, gives you opportunities to, I don't know, be much more modern in a sense, in that it is working across different sectors in different ways. Vanessa, what do, what do you think about it? I think, I think that what you said is absolutely spot on, Rex. It is very, very different and it's adapted to what we need now. But it also does have those threads that have always been around in TCs historically. It's that sense of belongingness, which is so important. And that because it's a group, all the relational practices and all the relationship difficulties actually are being acted out amongst members and resolved 
within that setting. And you mentioned co-production. Well, we have this flattened hierarchy where staff, you know, peer mentors, so people that have gone through the programme and come back to help, service users, all have the same sta um, status in the group, if you like. We all share, we're all human, we all check in, and we're all there as ourselves. And I think that's a really important feature of TCs. So already we're getting into ideas of, you know, adaptation and, you know, our kind of listeners will be just in hearing even that short description, you know, it's, it's quite different from, you know, Merrin's service, but there obviously are those key, well, in some ways different in terms of time. Mm, and things. Very different. I'm intrigued. But, yeah. but then also, like you say, there are these kind of core aspects of it. So I wonder, can we start sort of what, you know, where did these core ideas of kind of the relation and the, and the community kind of come from? Where, where, where does the idea of a TC, how, how does it get born? Well, it, I, I'm a bit of a troublemaker on this one because I say it's not a modern idea that came from the, you know, the wartime group experiments. A, a lot of people do say that. I think it came back. It's a sort of normal human impulse that goes back forever almost. And the first one I, I know that got identified was, was Giel um, in Flanders in the 13th century, which was an agricultural-based community where everybody who was mentally afflicted for miles around would come to this village and be looked after as um, taken in by the villagers to live in the house, to help on the, in the farm work, despite the fact they were very mentally disabled. And they were, they were looked after with care and compassion that, was, uh, that would not normally be the case for people with those problems uh, in those days. And then if you follow that history further forward, it comes to uh, moral treatment, which mm. was a phrase coined uh, when the Quakers uh, started working at the retreat in York, when they made very human, um, they humanised treatment. Before that, people were chained up in asylums, treated like animals. But the, the Quaker movement, um, the, I think it was uh, Samuel Tuke was the founder of it. Um, Sorry, and what, and what kind of time is that? So, oh, so this is the 1790s that the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the retreat was founded. Um, the, yeah, as I say, it was giving a human caring treatment to people who would otherwise be chained up and not even thought of as human. And people, they would eat with them, they would uh, have horticulture together, sessions that have different sort of walks in the countryside. I mean, all sorts of different things that, that basically uh, showed people a level of sort of respect and involvement and, and, and care that wasn't otherwise um, available. And so... I think that was a precursor of therapeutic communities. And indeed, the retreat has had therapeutic communities as part of its program um, until the last decade or so. And I'm afraid it's it's um, it's changed very substantially. And it's even, I think it, it's fair to say it's it's shot as a therapeutic community now. And it's what it did do, Rex, what it did do, Rex, sorry, was sure. it took us away from the idea of treatment of these mad people. So you don't cold shower, cold baths, chain them up, anything. You don't hand out Prozac and antipsychotics and tranquilizers. You treat it through relationships and living in that therapeutic way. Yeah. So I think that's really where those key concepts were established within our mental health system anyway. And and sorry, so just to clarify, Vanessa, you're so you're saying that, that that from that kind of Quaker movement retreat in kind of York, that was sort of that's where some of the precursor ideas to the model that we look at now kind of came from. Is that what you're saying? 
In a, in a very small part, yes, because it took us away from the medicalized and the physical treatments. And I think that's important yeah. because TCs don't use physical medical treatments. They use human being, belonging, living treatments. Yeah, and then perhaps, I mean, the, the several things happened at the beginning of the 20th century or then about, so that weren't to do with hospitals, but were to do with children's units, mm. um, to, to do with um, what we call learning disability and intellectual disabilities, uh, disabilities now, to, again, look after people in a, um, a convivial sort of way, rather than treat them as a, an illness, as it were. So. I won't go into all the different moves. So there are several different strands of therapeutic communities. The one that we're most interested in from Marion's experience and where Vanessa and I are working now is the one that started in hospitals. And that really um, is, is pretty well always traced back to the Northfield experiments uh, and the Mill Hill experiments uh, in the Second World War, which was treating battle shot soldiers in different ways. And they were run by psychoanalysts and psychotherapists uh, specializing in groups. Um, and again, I, I won't go into lots of details about that, but it became very clear that actually what mattered was the way people were with each other and the way they helped each other rather than being told they have a problem and this is what they must do about it. And, and, and that, that whole culture of, I mean, it's much more than self-help. It's, it, it is this co-production idea, really, that people together can form relationships that are healing and help people understand, what, um, you know, why life goes wrong for them in different ways and find different ways to do it as a sort of collaborative venture. And that, that thread, I mean, it's a very sort of uh, abstract way of putting it, but that thread has gone right through to the, very much to the work we've talked about doing in Slough now. I wonder if we can just hold on that sort of First World War, because for me, that's why, you know, I find it so interesting because obviously post-World Wars, that's, you know, in terms of that idea, you know, that you're saying that spirit of solidarity and community, for me, with my very limited historical knowledge, that sort of ties in with what we might think might, you know, creation of the NHS, yeah. um, the welfare state, you know, in sort of GCSE, there's the line that it was, you know, every, you know, everyone sort of uh, different classes are fighting the trenches alongside each other, so, so suddenly society becomes a very important um, concept. And the fact that it's obviously a model that, obviously, as you say, had precursors before then, but within England and the NHS, it starts being, is, is that right? It, it starts getting value, status, and crucially, funding as a sort of viable way of treating people. To what extent are those, yeah. is that historical period and the funding from the government, are they, are they linked? Is, am, I, am I right to link them? I, I think so. Um, I mean, I wasn't around in those in those early days, but the way I <laughs> read it is that um, it, it was part of the um, post Second World War. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't even know the language for it. Really, but people muck in together and help each other and make do and mend, and and a very collaborative effort um, that went certainly through the. Uh, 1950s in, in therapeutic community world, but then into the 60s, and then it got mixed up with, a, a part of it anyway, got mixed up with the the the, the raging um, anger of the anti-psychiatrists, who um, obviously in this country, Lang was the main 
proponent of it and Basalia in in Italy were was talking about much the same thing about the utter outrage of the way in which people were treated in by the mental health system and that caught a caught on fire really with the with the public mood of um, wanting to do everything against depression and I think we may be back in a similar place like that now I do hope so in a sense because I, I think yeah. that outraged about the way um, this uh, sort of impersonal um, uh, mechanical way of treating people just isn't good enough um, and that that certainly led to a, a sort of lot of violence. It also went a bit off the rails, I think, with um, particularly with what Lang was up to mm. in, um, in some of the places he ran back in the sixties. Um, it gave right. the therapeutic yeah. communities a bit of a bad name for being sort of chaotic, squalid places. Sorry, you were, Vanessa, you were you were just about to yeah. dive in on that job. Well, I was thinking when you're talking about the sixties, Rex. The other thing that's happened, I think, it's happening now post COVID is people actually opening up to others in a group and talking about how they are, their experience. You think about encounter groups in the 1960s, and then that sort of got lost in the 80s, 90s, where everybody yeah. was an individual and not yeah. that. But I wonder if it's coming back a little bit now post-COVID yeah. when we realise we need those other people and we need to be able to share and basically to talk within that group to support each other. Yeah, that's that's lovely. In a way, that's... that's where I, I came in at the worst time as it were when it when when sort of individualism the whole um sort of greed is good type a political movement when everybody sort of fight for themselves in the, the late 70s is when I, I mean I was a medical student in a TC in Oxford Phoenix unit in 1980 and I think that was you know, and it fired me up with the sort of, God, this is amazing. I can be professional and be myself at the same time and be playful and spontaneous and, you know, do creative things with people rather than just doing mental health treatment or psychiatric treatment, which was, you know, it was a revelation to me that you could actually be like that and professional at the same time. But I, I was there at the, probably the pinnacle of TC, well, um, you know, uh, mental health. TC at that time in hospitals, um, and I think it's faded since then. And as I, as I intimated earlier, the you know the fact that these were all residential then, and pretty much every county asylum in the country had a TC or a TC wing at least. Um, they all got shut down over the next uh, twenty or thirty years, and so the eighties, um, the residential ones pretty much got shut down. Then nineties is when I became a consultant um, in, in the one where Vanessa and I were together for a couple of years. Um, and that, that by then, the sort of dose was down to, um, I think it was four and a half days a week. Is that right? Let's, let's, let's just zone in on that period a bit. So, so yeah. if I've got, so, and from what you've said, you're sort of tying that quite closely to the kind of um, post-Thatcherites, you know, kind of individualism, that that definitely had an effect on the TC. In the actual working of it, you know, how was it? Is is that simply about funding and time? Were were, were certain professions, you know, that that idea of, um, you know, because in my head there's a sort of nat slightly natural correlation, even though I'm sure it's not this binary, but that the sort of uh, psychotherapeutic community relationship model feels something that feels more naturally aligned with the sort of. Let with like left wing political movements, whereas the 
maybe more Vanessa you're shaking your head Colin what do you what do you think I don't think you can actually do that correlation but I think what you can say is with the rise of medical treatments and if you think about when the asylum started closing down and people treating the community the use of antipsychotic drugs we had much more knowledge about different drugs the development of a lot of other drugs and I think that really played a part in how we started looking at and viewing mental health mm. um yeah and, what period is that <sighs> I would say 70s, 80s, actually, no, and then the new antipsychotics a bit later. Yeah, no, wasn't the 80s the decade of the brain or something, didn't they? Pronounce yeah, it was it? all about yeah. physical, chemical, neurotransmitters, mm. and that was seen yeah. as the cause of all this mental illness. Mm. Mm. And we know better now, you know. And that almost then led into the development of some of the therapies that are so prevalent today, with things like cognitive behavioural therapy, which is, a standardised, manualised therapy that's fairly reasonably easy to train somebody to deliver and can be done in large numbers. And that came, if you like, a lot of the services we now have came not from the sort of health aspect, but from an economic one. Mm -hmm. So it's like the government realised a lot of people weren't working because of anxiety and depression. What can we do about that? Well, we put money into these new services, increasing access to psychological therapies. Uh, the talking therapies as they are so it came from a different angle mm. yeah and i think that uh, that's i'd absolutely concur with that um but i what i've noticed across my consultant career is the uh, reduction of dosage i suppose by these external pressures it's not it's not just financial but it's also oh, that's a very wasteful sort of treatment in terms of uh, you know, what people don't need all that much you can do it in less time so as i say when vanessa was around with me in um in in the march tc we, we were in that was uh, four and a half days a week that soon went down to three days a week um, and that was a model that got replicated in several places around the country at that time through the National Personality Disorder Development Programme, particularly, um, uh, and a couple of them in London, including where, where Merrim uh, was. Yeah. Um, and, and that sort of three days model was fairly stable for a few years. But again, that got squeezed uh, harder. So when, for example, the Thames Valley Initiative, which is my colleague Steve Pierce and I were behind uh, putting in the bid for that, um, that three days a week was only in one centre across the whole area. And then the little ones, the, the smaller TCs around it, all became one day a week plus a group. And so that was the mini TC, as it were. And what sort of time is that, that you're talking about? So this was um, 2004 was when, when that programme started. Um, but since then, um, that, that model has uh, replicated in a few places of the tiny little TCs. Again, capturing and containing, still having this essence of relational practice about it, uh, but in a much lesser time. And then the ultimate example of that so far, there'll probably be others, I'm sure, is this model we've talked about what we're doing in Slough at the moment, the Embrace model, which is only two and a half hours a week. Mm -hmm. Micro TC, we call that one, but it's joined up to all sorts of other things in the community that aren't sort of run by the NHS. And that problem about being run by the NHS is a real difficulty at the moment. The NHS wants to control things in such a way that it's they're all um regulated and evidence-based and this that and the other in a way that tcs are more complex more 
more about the culture of the place, of the atmosphere, the way people relate to each other, rather than a single therapy. They, I call them the alphabeti spaghetti therapies. You know, the A, the CBT, DBT, IABT. You know, all these sort of acronyms of letters. And it's not about a particular brand of therapy that's sort of commercialized and sold. It's a, it's about the way we we work with each other and respect each other and are with each other. And that just doesn't sell in a in a modern. Um, it's not exactly commercialized, but managerialism, the whole managerialism, everything has to be pinned down. There's no room for any doubt or spontaneity. It's got to be, um, you know, prescribed in advance, detailed, um, um, what are they called, operational policies for everything you do. And it just makes the spontaneity needed in those early TCs almost impossible to have in the NHS. I mean, we survive because we do all these other things. Other people survive because they work so hard at doing, at having to do all that stuff as well as the TC. So I think that's one of the reasons I say they're really struggling in the NHS at the moment. So I, I, I wonder if we can, you know, when you're talking about, you know, I think your language suggests, you know, what your answer is going to be to this. But when you talk about survival and, you know, the idea of hours reducing, I wonder if, if, I, if I could get you both just to talk a little bit about, you know, what you think gets lost or, you know, actually, is it about... Um, does 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 this increasing drive you know there's an understandable drive for efficiency and wanting to make the most of our resources you know is there a sense where we are refining what we can do with relational therapy and making a leaner slicker model or are we sort of losing things i mean vanessa i wonder if you could talk a bit about your you know experience you know with the with the therapeutic community and how that how when you first encountered it how you feel that's changed for the better or worse i think I mean, even when I first encountered it, I'd been caught up in the psychiatric system. So drugs, risk assessment, short meetings with psychiatrists, and obviously I was ill. And I think what the therapeutic community model does is to actually almost turn you into a human being again. Yes, you may still have the same problems, you may still have the same history of different traumatic events, but you are a human being. And I think, although we do capture that in the SLAIR service, that's missing from so many services. You go along and you're taught a skill like mentalization, and you're taught another skill to deal with anxiety, and you're taught another skill called mindfulness. And these are all great skills. And don't get me wrong, they're really good skills and they're very, very useful. But they're all in their own little envelopes and they don't relate to actually being human and being human alongside other people. And that's what I think has been lost. Mm. Yeah. And Rex, would you sort of concur with that? Is that is that your impression? I, I would, yes. Um, I mean, I think uh, TCs are um, not for everybody. A lot of people can't cope with the level of sort of responsibility it puts back on them, as it were, and the staff just not, you know, I, I, I'm here, I need my treatment. I, you know, I'm... Uh, I, you know, tell me what I need to do, sort of attitude, which is which some of the more directive therapies uh, work to work to that, and it's fine. TCs are sort of in a way at the at the edge of the uh, therapeutic range of possibilities in terms of giving people back responsibility for themselves in a fairly vigorous and 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 hard edged way. Um, although they're also, I'd say, very. Um, very compassionate and caring as well as that. So it's the, that mixture of conflict and, and, and challenge, as it were. Challenge and conflict 
on the other side of it is support and care and that they have to have that that mixture in them um, and you can do that rex because it's a group if you're trying to do that one-to-one -one, it simply wouldn't work but yeah. because it's a group yeah. you can hand back that responsibility because the group supports yeah. you with it and the experts in that group are the people who've been through it themselves of course of course and not as a staff because we can never know it in that way uh, although we'll have our own mental health issue, um, sort of thoughts and things and our own problems but we can never know in that depth that, that the people will the other thing i'd say that is where it's where it's sort of gone to since in the last 10 years or so in certainly in my own mind it's trying to distill out some of these ideas about this relationship type of relationship we're talking about and being able to put that in other places now this comes from a con one bit of it anyway, it comes from a conversation i had with john cox who was a lovely um president of the royal college of psychiatrists he ran a tc in stoke-on-trent many many years ago for mothers and babies um we often had conversations about it and he said it's all very well this community of communities work you're doing rex this other this stuff but but it's so small hardly anybody benefits from it why don't you uh, why can't you do something for you know, most psychiatric you know, places? And so with that, we set up the Enabling Environments Award at the Royal College, which takes some of the relational qualities of what happens in TCs and puts them and sort of weighs them up, measures them in different settings. It's gone a storm in the prison service, actually. Mm. So there's about 200 or so of them now, I think, signed up to the Enabling Environments Award. And it's got... Um, I mean, it, it, it's got a set of 10 standards that are very much based on relational values, uh, things like belonging and boundaries and safety and empowerment and leadership. I mean, there's 10 of them, as I said, I won't go through them all. But that's trying to take the TC out of the, the building and the fixed frame of a TC and be able to use it elsewhere. And, and as I say, that's been successful in the uh, criminal justice sector as much as anything can be in the criminal justice sector at the moment and in a few other places but it's that idea of not necessarily having to have it in a tc which is a very only for a, a sort of hard-boiled um purified form of it but actually being able to use those ideas elsewhere and since that the those of us uh, nick benfield and i particularly vanessa's been quite involved have developed the sort of ideas about relational practice from that and trying to define that and say actually these things are actually all about working relationally rather than working to a, a cookbook recipe for a different type of therapy and that's getting a bit of traction actually there's other therapies that are similar um in the sort of relational practice field i mean i, I think green care is for example uh, like that i think a lot of the trauma work is like that i mean i think the people who wrote the power threat meaning framework are on the same track as that i think some human rights groups and um and sort of various consciousness raising groups that are around at the moment are actually on a on a similar similar track to that um this sort of working in a way that is relational rather than I don't know quite what. What's the opposite word to relational, Vanessa? Institutionalized. Um, yeah. Manualized. Corporate, overmanaged. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, you know, public service thinking, new public management, whatever, is is light years away from realizing that that's they're lacking that at the moment. They're, so they're just, uh, maybe if we could just dwell on that just a bit. So you know, um, we've we've sort of looked at kind of tr trace that kind of rise and fall and I think Vanessa you sort of mentioned you know that idea of like the 80s the 
was it did you say the decade of the brain or I think one of you mentioned that that it's and then that sort of how that kind of translates into um you know actual for like kind of funding and resources and obviously you know you you both sort of test of all, all kind of testified to the fact that therapeutic communities have to either adapt to survive or that their, their hours are kind of going down so where where to, to kind of to to what extent are the kind of are those political wins that we're also so familiar reading about of things like you know austerity how how did kind of austerity affect provision of mental health services specifically kind of tcs um and maybe coming out of that you know i mean at the very start you sort of were saying that there might be some hope for optimism kind of moving forward i, I wonder if you could just trace that that sort of last bit of the chapter for us you know in terms of uh, how we've, you know, the, the last 10 years and, and, and what things are like looking forward? Gosh. <laughs> I think, I'm looking at what you're saying. I think we've had so many new initiatives as well. We've had things like NICE guidelines. Now, NICE guidelines recommend treatment for certain conditions that have been diagnosed. So that's two things there. You've got to be able to diagnose and give somebody that label. Whereas a lot of the emotional and mental problems with deal with in the sort of therapeutic community world aren't don't fit into those nice, nice neat boxes of diagnosis and if they do they normally come into something like personality disorder which isn't that useful so then you've got the nice guidelines which are obviously evidence-based and sorry Vanessa what the the, the nice guidelines could oh you... sorry National Institute for Clinical Excellence they um, distribute guidelines for the best treatment for all medical conditions and mental health conditions. So mm. they give a pathway of which you are meant to follow. I mean, it was meant to sort of solve different areas, having better services and postcode lottery type ideas. So there's some good to it as well. Mm. But this insistence on evidence-based therapies has actually meant that there are some therapies it's very easy to research in a randomized controlled trial because they're standardized, because they're short, um, we can argue about actually how clients are uh, recruited to those and actually the validity of the evidence. But basically, some things like, if you like, CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, are very easy to research. And that's had sort of a confounding effect because it's meant more and more research has been done, so there's more and more evidence. And therefore, they're more and more um, directed to telling people to use their services. And the TC world did not do well in that evidence-based race. There have been randomised controls that are trials done on therapeutic communities. In fact, um, the one done by Steve Pierce in Oxford is sort of the one that's really up there. But because there's no one therapy being given in a therapeutic community, we're not saying we're doing this thing here A or we're giving this drug here B, then people don't consider it to be a evidence-based treatment yeah. it's an evidence-based way of treating but not a treatment itself yeah. and, and furthermore we had a, um, a bit of um, discussion and and snags with this last year in that TCs aren't even recognized as a treatment mm. by the Cochrane database which is the Cochrane database is the uh, register of research that um, of high quality research as it were in this country um, because they well because they're sort of environmental and fuzzy and not a simple treatment to measure the effects of as Vanessa is saying so if TCs aren't even recognized as a treatment at that level what hope is that? And it brings me back to your uh, question, Rob, about 
what are the reasons to be optimistic? I don't know many actually, <laughs> because I think the world is going in that that direction of everything being so highly operationalized and pinned down and risk averse and everything um, organized in advance, as it were. I mean, the, the one hope I have is completely different though, which is you know the only hope for the sort of the globe and the climate, as it were. Young people think differently about these things. And I'll be glad when they get their hands on in controlling things. I think they will see that relationality, you know, whether it's social media or whatever else, relationality is so important and we're in threat of losing it if we follow the very reductionist mechanical ways of being that uh, new public management wants us to be. But you did say, Rex, you were quite enthusiastic at the beginning about your two and a half hours. And I'm curious to know how you feel positive about that i suppose sitting where i yeah, am where yeah. we've lost something that i feel is very precious yeah. but i'm hearing you who i know is an advocate of the relational approach how yeah. do you do that how do you manage to sort of feel that there's some worth in what you're offering and i hear that it's things outside yeah. of the nhs what you know yeah. how much is there yeah well i mean at one level it's being with people in that group who've come a long way mm -hmm. you know they're very much clinically you know they're people who are have you know very chaotic lives very difficult to find it very difficult to be in the group with us who are actually now uh you know uh, 12 months 18 months into the program are, are, you know really got a lot out of it there's that clinical level that this is really and i'm sure you've experienced much the same working in tc's yourself uh, marion but but on the organisational level, it's increasingly difficult to um, justify it within the system. Um, the, the particular bit um, we're in, uh, the, the, all sorts of pathways have been set up. I think this is across trusts. I don't think it's just Berkshire. All sorts of uh, sort of pathways. So we're part of the cluster eight or personality disorder or emotionally unstable personality disorder pathway. And we are very much outside the mainstream. We're not part of what is um, prescribed as an evidence-based treatment by NICE, as Vanessa said, or part of the sort of policy directives from NHS England or within the trust from the, the, the people who have responsibility for these policies within the trust. We're just not part of that. We do things in a very different way that they don't recognise as part of uh, mental health. And we've survived because um well we've demonstrated through some figures that we've actually saved quite a lot of money by not having people go into hospital beds for you know revolving door sort of admission type things um and we've got friends within the wider system you know these as i say they're only with us for two and a half hours a week but they're part of the rest of the system and other people in the system are supporting us but like i say the nhs is so insular and, and dare i say rigid and fixed in the way it has to do things which is very top-down controlled prescribed regulated that i don't think that will survive much longer i mean i'm it's a horrible thing to say but i'm retiring in february next february um and uh, I don't know. I, I mean, it will survive beyond me, certainly. But uh, but it's it's. I sort of I, I I'd be glad to giving up the struggle. Actually, yeah, it's well, such hard right. work to but fight what's, against that. What's world. the wider system that maybe there's some hope in? I to me, can I just say I know what you're saying, Rex, and you are right. But that two and a half hours a week, the people who attend it, 
it's so, so valuable. Of course, when COVID hit, we went online and there were lots of struggles with that. And now we're just about back face to face. But people come to that. And one of our rules is if you need a psychiatric hospital admission, you have to leave the group and not come back for a year. Just that knowledge mm. is meant people reporting suicidal urges that will not act on them because they know they will lose the group. They will lose the people in that group who they support as well as support them. And that sense of belongingness, which yeah. just two and a half hours a week can actually foster, I think is something to celebrate and is something to be optimistic about. push both of you on that just a little bit though because do you, like well I mean I guess the question is do you think that the two and a half hours is as valuable as say the three and a half days model might have been or if it isn't as valuable do you think it is better value for money I think it's the other things people do in the bits when they're not with us that matter actually. So it's the fact it makes links outside the strict TC boundary, as it were, that, that make, means it's not a, an isolated um, sort of service that could be cherry-picked and sort of, well, not cherry-picked, but could be sort of closed down easily, as it were, because it's linked to all sorts of other things. I don't think it is as useful, no. But what it does do is allows a wider range of people to attend. So some of our members in Slough work and they can have that time off work and maybe being in Grace actually helps them remain in work because of the emotional stability. But if it was three, three and a half days a week, they wouldn't be able to do it. Or people with childcare um, responsibilities or other caring responsibilities. So this two and a half hour model does actually allow more people to access it. Yeah, it's a trade-off, I think, and mm. I, the trade-off for me is that the thing I miss about this micro-TC we're in at the moment is is the um, availability of in some sort of intensive therapy to really, really get, you know, work hard with somebody at that level. That doesn't exist in it. Um, there's bits of it and there's... Um, you know, other therapies they might uh, go to afterwards or this, that and the other, that, that sort of local trauma therapy service or whatever. But they, but that intensive therapy, when that was inside the body of the therapeutic community, as it was in pretty much all the models um, before this micro-TC, I, I, I think that gave it something, gave it extra sort of teeth and power and leverage that we don't have in this group. But the the opposite of that is what I've just said, that linking to all sorts of other things, giving people a sense of belonging, not just in the group with us, but in the wider community and giving people a sort of purpose and through the peer mentor programme and all sorts of other bits like that. That is a fair balance, I think. We've, we've lost something important, but we've also gained something equally important. And I don't think to measure one against the other, um, that it's not as if one is, it's not as if we've lost much more than we've gained or anything. They're sort of, they're different. And that's the sort of adaptations of TCs that I think, um, you know, are necessary to survive at the moment, certainly in a hostile environment like the NHS. I suppose I just worry a little bit, and I don't know what you feel, Vanessa and Rex, but that um, what's been lost is that very, whatever you want to call it, heavy end group of people who perhaps needed that 
sort of uh, more than two and a half hours, you know, I mean, to actually get them to engage in the first place, you know, where they could act out quite extremely at some points and then come back and keep doing it because I don't think it's, it's easy. And then, of course, I think what we had to adapt to was that if people wanted to come to, say, our leavers group, they had to engage in some form of activity in a group outside in the community. And that made so much difference, yeah, you know, that you, you it's not endless therapy, but it's about how you then help people put that into practice outside. But I suppose my, you know, concern is that it's not one or the other, as you say, but we need both, really. Yeah, yeah, and the... Um, the evidence way of commissioning treatments, evidence-based way of commissioning all treatments now means, you know, depth psychotherapy is just not available in the NHS. Yeah, or and it's done by yeah. trainees and honoraries who don't get paid. But yeah. it sounds like just a sort of kind of, you know, I'm sort of obsessed with the kind of history curve of it, but it sounds like from what you're saying that actually it's not so much about austerity as it is about the sort of triumph of the of the triumph of the statistical, you know, it, it's much more about the sort of wave of evidence based, rather than necessarily a withdrawal of funding. Or does that funding, or are they do they do they intersect? I think they do intersect actually, because if you can have uh, medical treatments, drugs, and you can have quick fix therapies that are cheaper as well as evidence-based, is going to go that way. So I think there is a funding thing as well. I mean, you can point to the fact that there's far more um, people attending talking therapies than we've ever had in this country. Mm -hmm. But it's missing out those with the more ingrained, the longer-term issues, the trauma issues. And we are helping a lot of people with anxiety and depression that would not have had that help in previous years. I grant you, and I think that's great, but it's taken away from the secondary yeah. services, such as TCs, that are needed. And, and the system is so lean and mean at the moment, with no spare, no fat on it anywhere, as it were, that TCs are one of the natural things that just don't survive in that environment, that everything's cut right back to the bone. And yet you try and say, even if it's only a very small percentage, if they are the people who are going to clog up inpatient units, A&E, act out the you know juvenile and forensic system yeah. why not invest because it's it's long-term saving but you oh. can't talk like that can you? absolutely married yeah. but that is just nobody sees that sense really there's nobody in a position yeah. to pick that up and, and go with it yeah yeah is is there anything that i've missed or anything that that either of you were you know um you know would just like to kind of volunteer as sort of kind of another thing to think about or just thought of a little bit more hope, actually. <laughs> oh, great. Need I, hope, yeah. Rex. I, feel so, I feel so deeply pessimistic about some of these things. <laughs> and, and this is in, the, as I say, within the NHS, I think therapeutic communities in other sectors and elsewhere in the world are probably going to survive and do fine. It's just in our little bit of it that there's such trouble. And the hope in our little bit of it, I think, is that there is... The 10-year uh, pl- forward view plan for more money in the NHS is going to give quite a lot more resourcing to community services. And I think, although it won't be TCs and it probably won't be enabling environments, the idea of relational practice 
will figure in that. I don't think people will put up with it not being relational. They won't put up with more sort of mechanical reductionist, uh, you know, you have to, like you're being you're treated as a sort of faulty car going into the garage sort of model. I think I think that will have to shape up. And I know a little bit of the some of the people involved in that stuff. And I do have faith that they get that idea. And there's research going on, like the stuff that Vanessa mentioned in UCLAN, but also um, that the, the research yeah, yeah. In, in London that's highlighting uh, relational practice as a as a key element of uh, what needs to happen and be different in community and community, yeah, mental health services. So that's a little bit of optimism, I think, with that with that new NHS money. They can't ignore this need. I guess I guess also what you're saying is is that if everyone listened to the podcast, then <laughs> the people would rise up and demand something better. But all we need is a change in how we act as humans. You know, therapeutic communities could literally be, our communities could be therapeutic, our yeah. societies could be, our towns could be. Yeah. Um, we need a post-COVID revolution, actually, to find out what we missed during lockdown and know where we need to put that back into everybody's life. That's, mm. that's your task, Rob. That's it. <laughs> Lead the revolution. This is a younger generation. Exactly, the youngins, they'll do it for us. <laughs> um, amazing. Well, um, uh, thank you both so much yes, for coming on and talking you. to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, wow. wow. Yes. What do you think? Oh, I don't know. I'm full up with feelings and thoughts. Yeah, it was yeah. great to see them. And it's good to have Vanessa on board as yeah. well. You know, having the experience of having been a service user as well, I was fascinated mm. and wanted to hear more. But, you know, we, you know, it just made me think about all the sort of people that we've treated, if you want to call that word, or they've had the experience of a TC who have really fundamentally move forward in their lives in ways that they are really happy with. Of course, it's not everyone. And, you know, you have to sometimes change is very, rela you know, relational. You mm. know, it may not ever get to be there, live happily ever after and blah, blah, blah. Mm. But, you know, it's significant shifts that make people have a more full and creative lives and relationships. And I just think... Yeah, I mean, it's always this thing about there are some great things going on, but it's not either or. And at the moment, it is this sort of um, that's what I thought fight was, for resources. Yeah, that's what I thought was so interesting in terms of, you know, they were both such amazing advocates and champions of what sounds like an incredible service that yeah. they've got. Um, what was, I think, so interesting was kind of over the course of that conversation, um, I think they're clearly so used to having to always mm. defend it and yes. justify everything um, that in a way there's almost like you can't even have the space to sort of wonder if there's mm. um, an alternative. And I think it was interesting at, you know, at kind of the end of that conversation sort of coming together, you know, because obviously the way that's that your, your service was trying to kind of cling on to yeah. the old school model mm. um, and yeah. the, the, the service that Rex and Vanessa had you know a part of operating in slough has sort of done the whole adapting thing yes. and but really what rex was saying the same thing is is it's adapt or die yes. because of the wider sort of 
problems. And I do want to say we did try and adapt. Mm. We did come up even with a one-day model or mm. and only for very severe end and trying to do more other things. Mm. But it wasn't wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I, I guess what it sort of, I think, takes us into, you know, with our next episode and kind of thinking forward mm. is that, you know, we're sort of really seeing how over the last few decades, you know, that real change mm. in what is seen as valuable and yeah. this sense of this kind of triumph of the statistical and this the kind of idea that psychotherapy didn't do well enough in mm. the mm. um data race well it didn't in the evidence bases yeah yes. and as a result you know mm. the sort of psycho psychology based treatments um yeah. and you know still obviously psychiatry based treatments are important but mm. uh, you know the, the, that that change in how those three interact, yeah, um, I I think is really interesting in terms of what when where we are at now and what we're mm. losing. And I yeah. think it'll be really interesting in our next episode yeah. to kind of really take a deep dive into what the more sort of psychologically based treatments like cognitive behavioural therapy, what they promise, mm. and to what extent what they promise is what they you know whether whether they can actually deliver on that. And also um, about the whole history of how it developed and what they are, you know, because I think CBT has been manipulated and used as well by governments and politicians. And, mm. you know, <clears throat> it's it's not a panacea for all. And I don't think most competent CBT therapists would say that. Mm. But it's much more about, yeah, we have to put it in its context of mm. where we are at in terms of as a society, what things get valued, what things don't get valued. Mm -hmm. And I suppose I would say, you know, the drive of individualism has meant relationships have become forgotten. Mm. Which is so interesting because, you know, we I think can see that that relational aspect, yeah. you know, that is a fundamental aspect of of human being, life and human health, life. health, being attachment. People. We couldn't live without each other. Yeah. A baby would die if it didn't have a mother and, you know, yeah. don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't get you started because no. we're coming to the end. <laughs> okay. Um, so thank you so much for listening, everybody. Really hope you enjoyed that episode um, and we will hope to see you next time. Make hope some so. more sense of the madness. Yay. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye. Making Sense of the Madness is an independently produced podcast that's been kept strictly within the family. The producer was me, Rob Thorman. Sound was mixed by Rami Radi. Rami also composed and produced our original music. Sophie Jones designed our cover art. We'd like to thank Ella Jones and Tom Keller for their production support. And Marin and I would like to offer our heartfelt thanks to all our guests across the series. Music